in evaluating the transactions that, that, that you have and you underwrite better than than most of my clients. So I would I, I don't blame you for sleeping well at night with the, the amount of time you put into your underwriting. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Rise and Invest podcast. I bought my first two properties as a 19-year-old with my own money that I earned from an online business I started in high school. I've now grown my portfolio from that first duplex to hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. My goal with this show is to give you the resource I wanted when I first started out. Subscribe to our podcast where I break down real-life stories, tactics, strategies, and current market information you need to be a successful investor. All right, with us today is Steve Kundert, Senior Vice President with CBRE's Debt and Structured Finance Group. I'm excited to bring him on because he's the most knowledgeable person I've come across when it comes to capitalizing real estate projects, specifically raising the debt. I suspect a lot of potential borrowers have heard of lenders like Fannie, Freddie, HUD, debt funds, life companies, CMBS, but maybe haven't spoken with someone who can originate all those types of loans. Steve Kundra can do all that and more. And we're going to pick his brain today. So please welcome someone I've done over 25 loans with, Steve Condert. Thank you, Drew. Happy to be here. Great. Senior Vice President with CBRE's Debt and Structured Finance Group. So what does someone with that kind of title actually do? So what that means is I am a intermediary or a mortgage broker. A lot of people don't like to use the word broker, but that is in essence what I do. So I don't represent any capital myself. I place borrowers with third-party capital be it some of your examples of Fannie, Freddie, HUD, life insurance companies, banks, CMBS, debt funds, really any provider of capital in that if a client has a need for capital, they come to me and I go out ultimately and find the most appropriate source for that debt. Great. Maybe before we get into the different like debt options out there, maybe why don't you tell like the viewers how, maybe how you got into a position like this? Sure. It's pretty straightforward. I think it's a little rare, but I've been doing this for my entire career. Nice. I've always been a mortgage broker. This, this year marks my, my 20th year in the industry. Nice. Uh, I started my career with a boutique mortgage banking firm here in Chicago called Cohen Financial. Worked there until 2009, which time me and my team went over to Grubb & Ellis. Remember that name? We started their mortgage banking platform because at that time, that was really when you started to have the integration of investment sales and debt. There was a, that was, the investment sales platform is not something that Cohen Financial had at that time. Grubb & Ellis had that, did not have debt. So it was a, it was a, a natural nice. marriage. I was at Grubb for three years until they filed bankruptcy in 2012, at which time me and my partner were then recruited over to CBRE, where I've been ever since. Nice. Well, great. I think probably, I mean, the goal of today's podcast, we wanted to get into kind of the you know, major sources of capital. You know, like I mentioned, I've done over... 25 loans with you. I mean, it hasn't been that many. You well, hear that number. It sounds, I know uh, I counted them up before we started where I, it was, I didn't remember the exact number already, but it was over 25. And then shout out to Jim Boza. Cause he's been on helping with a lot of those Freddie SBL ones. Absolutely. Too. So, but I mean, probably why don't, I mean, let's give like a, just a general overview kind of on different debt options. So maybe on, you know, let's say you have like a transitional property. So it's going to be a value add deal or a construction deal. I mean, what would like a, uh, potential borrowers, you know, debt options be for something like that. So I'll actually preface everything by saying that I think the focus of the conversation will be multifamily. That's not to say that I focus solely on multifamily, but that's how we're going to tailor this right now. If you have any you know, additional questions or want to talk about other property types, we can do that as well. But, you know, thinking about the apartment landscape, there's, there's really 
two subsets of the market, what I will call institutional and private. It's really broken down by the size of the asset. And there's really no hard and fast line what delineates that, that institutional versus private, but it, there is a big difference in the type of lender. If you are looking at a, at a private or, or sub-institutional property, in Chicago, that's typically sub 40 units, more likely probably five to 25 units, you know, mm -hmm. your, your five flats or, or your smaller courtyard buildings. And what kind of, maybe just for like a broader audience, like what sort of dollar amounts were you talking about? In terms of debt amounts, probably 1 million up to about seven and a half million. Okay. And seven and a half million is the number that I chose because that is the ceiling for which the small balance agency programs can lend to. Above that, you go into more of the conventional financing. And there's some nuances there that we can, we can talk about a little bit later. But you're looking at the, that, that private type of, of investment. The predominant source of that capital is still just your traditional bank. It's relationship-driven. It's recourse, meaning that you are signing personally for that loan. If something should go wrong with the loan, you're, you're responsible for personal repayment and that the bank can then go after your personal funds and, and everything else. The converse of that is, is non-recourse financing which is the liability goes back to the entity only. The, the borrower has no direct repayment guarantee other than instances of fraud or misappropriation of funds and that sort of thing. So the predominant source of capital for that, that private type investment is still banks. There's really not all that much, I guess, nuance to the banking market. It's still, it's still pretty straightforward. And banks have looked the same and smelled the same for the most part for, for years and years. Where it is new in the market is all the other sources of capital, the non-bank sources of capital that are coming into the space. For transitional deals, that very much includes the, the emergence of debt funds. Five, 10 years ago, debt funds, and I guess I should define that, debt funds are typically private equity firms that have raised funds to go off and invest in real estate. They are short-term in nature, typically floating rate, non-recourse. In yesterday's world, to get a, a debt fund transaction, sub $15 million, really sub $20 million in loan amount, it was a very small universe of lenders. Not very many people are doing that at all. So over that, those last five, seven years, what we have seen is that that market really, really explode to the point where you now have funds that are going off and doing loan amounts as low as, as a million, $2 million. Oh, really? Now, typically, because of the fee structure for, for those types of loans, it doesn't make sense. You're still better off going with a bank. In fee structure, you, you're really talking about the origination costs? The origination costs. So remember, these, these are funds. They, I mean, they, are, they, are, they are established to make a return for, for the, the mothership fund. Because of that, they need to make not only their percentage amount, but on smaller deals, a whole dollar amount as well. So if you have a, call it a $3 million loan, in order to get the same overall return as a $20 million loan, they have to not only price it higher, but they have to have a little bit more robust fee structure. Oh, so whereas a $20, $25 million loan would be typically a maybe three quarters of a point or a point going in, half a point, quarter point, maybe a waived fee going out. And generically, a LIBOR-based spread of anywhere from 150 to 350, based on the profile of that deal. To make that whole dollar return and percentage return on the smaller loans, now you're looking at one, maybe two points in, half a point, maybe one point out, and spreads that are, that are typically higher. Interesting. And then, I mean, let's say kind of maybe to back up then on a 
normal, like a normal size debt fund loan. So something, let's say 10 million plus, like what, what would somebody be looking at for origination costs? I think generically it's going to be one and a half. So one, one going in half going out. And then in, in today's market where we're seeing the biggest negotiation is on that exit fee. A lot of exit fees will, will come down to a quarter point, if not waived altogether. There are a handful of bridge to agency funds specifically that will waive the exit fee if you transition into a permanent product with that originating group. For example, CBRE has a, has a fund that is designed to go from bridge into a CBRE, Fannie Mae, or Freddie Mac product. And if it does, then that exit fee is waived. We're seeing more and more in that in the market right now. But that's not, I will say that's not necessarily specific to just those bridged agency funds, because as the, as the other truly independent debt funds work to compete against those bridged agency, they're, they're waiving that exit fee. So they're basically able to match that. Exactly right. And then one thing that's, you know, unique to debt funds, I think, is the, I mean, there's not a lot of lenders that are looking for an exit fee. So maybe just, I'll just reiterate that where that's what, when you say like a half point out or an exit fee, there's a, an additional, you know, fee on, you know, when you have your loan payoff. That's it's different because yes. these are typically floating rate loans. So normally there won't be any kind of prepay, but they're building in some sort of a prepay penalty. I guess they shortened it, but they're building in an exit cost. We'll call it an, an exit cost because a, there, there is a prepay penalty in that most of these loans, which are generically structured as 36-month terms, will have a minimum interest component. So if, if you do a 36-month term, it'll be effectively a yield maintenance through 12, 18 months. So even if you pay off before then, you still have to pay 12, 18 months of interest. And that is, again, as, as these funds go, and it's really just math them to go and and right. figure out the return that they need internally on a risk adjusted return for that particular investment. It makes sense. And I mean, the debt fund market's really exploded. I mean, every, I mean, you as a lender, I'm sure every time you go on LinkedIn, there's a new announcement of a, of a new debt fund. It um, is. It, 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 it's really quite remarkable how many, how many hedge funds have, have established real estate debt funds, how many life companies have established debt funds. The statistic that I saw the other day was that at, at, at this point of the year, the debt funds year to date have put out close to $30 billion of, of product. Now, in a vacuum, that, that number doesn't mean anything, but that is, that is, that is close to a 15, 20% increase over last year, which if you now look <clears throat> at that, that's a yeah. pretty significant number. And I heard, it's actually on a, on a different podcast, people were talking with uh, with an intermediary and they were... They're acting like they're making very few agency loans. They make they're primarily financing multifamily, and they're just and it's in, in the south. So you know the cap rates are low. You need you know being at a full you know debt cover that these agencies require that they're you know everyone's going debt fund because they're more you know potentially more flexible on the sizing going in. Maybe want to touch on that? Absolutely. So to your point, especially with the you know the smile markets, east coast, south, out to the west coast. The cap rates that we're seeing, especially institutional properties trade, is, as you know from, you know, from, from your exploration, it's in some cases, it's three, it's sub 3% cap rates. Unless you're a pension fund with a cost of capital of, of 100 basis points, typically that's not going to be a long-term hold for everyone. Right. So when you're buying these, these, these assets, there is some upside, whether it be a renovation plan, whether it be an opportunistic growth in, in rent. Whatever the case may be, there's value creation. So to go off and do a permanent loan today, you're trapping a lot of that equity. Most private entrepreneurial investors are looking to lever up 
reasonably to to as much as possible. So if you're looking to lever up as much as possible, because you're you're buying that at such a low cap, inherently the 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 debt cover is going to be low. And if you're going to an agency product where you are sizing to a box, both LTV and, and debt service coverage, when you when you fit that box for coverage of the 120 or 125, that's going to push down leverage to 50 percent, if not if not lower. And you're buying on a three cap. That's that's now a big. Not only is that a big check to to write, but once you go and create your value disproportionately, your your debt is going to be now 35, 40%. Right. So that is why people are using the debt funds because they have the opportunity to go in upwards of a 70, 75, 80% loan to cost and have the ability to structure an interest reserve so that you can get around that, that coverage hurdle and now give the investor time to go through, accomplish their business plan, and then have your your capital event on the exit, whether it be a sale or refinance. So important thing, I mean, there needs to be some sort of value creation plan where you can't get a, in these low cap rate markets, a 75, 80% LTV debt fund loan if there's no, you know, plan to, you know, create value, drive the NOI up. That's exactly right. So if, you, if, if you're looking at how the lender will be sizing, the debt fund lender will be sizing that loan going in, it will be based largely on the exit because they want to make sure that it is a financeable deal. Now, that being said, if you know it is a sale, you don't necessarily need to size to just a refinance exit. It is more prevalent, but for I mean, using, using just generic numbers, a 7% exit debt yield is, is really the benchmark of what we're seeing in the market right now. That is where if you back into where Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, CMBS market to a certain degree is looking at, 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 at their, their loans today, that's what they kind of back into. And they're, they're looking at the stabilized debt yield though? They'll, that'll be a stabilized debt so yield. So that, that'll be a debt yield today. So if you were to do a loan today, that is what your, that, that is what your debt yield will be. So, so a debt fund, which is looking at what the cash flow will look like tomorrow after you've done your work, they want to size to that exit. So if it's like a three-year business plan, three-year debt fund loan, they're trying to be at a seven debt yield on your year three. Correct. Performa. And then debt yield in OI divided by loan amount, right? So Easy we can make sure everybody's got that. Anything else worth touching on debt funds on? Just say that in addition to coming down in overall size, what we are seeing in the market is the opportunity to potentially push up leverage as well. Earlier this year, I closed an 86% loan to cost deal. That was structured as an AB internally, but it was it was seamless to the borrower. Maybe let's so, define it with AB. Just so to... when you're looking at a senior loan, we'll we'll call that the A piece. The senior loan will go up to typically 75%, maybe 80%. Everything above that, we can call it MES, you can call it a B piece, whatever you whatever you want to call it. That'll go up from 75 to usually around 90% is that is where that that MES will be, 85, 90%. Above that, now you're talking about equity. So this, this particular investment, which was a multifamily complex in suburban Chicago, the sponsor was looking for either an equity investor or, or MES to bring them up higher. Well, you bring in equity, that, that's a whole new ballgame in right. terms of your cost of capital, in terms of the approval rights that those investors have in your, in your business plan. So what we were able to structure for this particular client was a, a single point of contact loan that went up to 86% of cost. Again, seamless to them. So when it comes time to write their, you know, their their mortgage check, it's one check. They're not they're not paying lender right. over here, lender over here, equity investor over here. It's it's one payment, and that they were able to go off, get eighty six percent of cost. 
that included renovation dollars to accomplish their business plan. And the cost of capital was only slightly higher than, than what it would have been had you gone up to just 75%. Because if you look at that, that blended cost of capital, whatever that 75 to the, the 86% was priced, I, I don't have transparency into that, but, but you, look at, you look at all in, it was a 4% rate. Nice. If you if you consider generic cost of equity is is ten twelve fifteen percent look uh, at that blended cost of capital and that that really juices the returns yeah, especially that leverage and then I mean it you know you have you know two different lenders you know that both get what they want where you have a more secure you know a piece and it's getting a lower rate and then the B piece are getting a higher rate so then typically who would be in that B piece that's more like another like a different debt fund or would be? There are funds that have been raised specifically to buy BPs, both on <clears throat> in the CLO market as well as the CMBS market. CLO typically being floating rate, CMBS more of the, the fixed rate longer term. But there are also single point of contact firms that do both. Oh, okay. And that is really where you get the most efficiency when you, when you yeah. try to pursue that type of product. Download our 100 plus page passive investing guidebook today. Accredited investors can sign up for our multifamily investment opportunities as well by hitting the invest now button on our website. Now back to the show. Okay, well, I think we probably covered debt funds enough. Why don't we jump back to the bank financing? What, what would someone be looking at for origination costs on, on a bank loan today? So banks will typically take a half a point to a point origination fee, usually not an exit fee. And now, as we've touched on before, that type of money is also usually a little bit more conservative. But you know, that being said, there are inherently more flexible options that you can price in with a bank, whether that be a, a future funding or accommodation if you're looking to buy a deal in phases, whatever the case may be. But again, that's recourse money. So that there are options, excuse me, there are advantages and disadvantages of, of going with, with a bank. That flexibility, that ease of execution is one of the main yeah. pros, the cons being that it can, it can be a little bit more conservative. Definitely. What, what would, you know, one thing that comes to mind comparing bank and debt fund is the, you know, like loan covenants. So, you know, like a lot of the bank loans that we've done, we actually couldn't get the debt service coverage covenants out of them. I mean, we, we, you know, we were picking the bank, I'd say primarily based on rate and like with flexibility and other stuff than that. Um, you know, so then like that always comes to mind because I have some bank loans where we have a debt service mm -hmm. coverage covenant. Maybe want to, you know, touch on that. That's a great, great question. Great question. So with banks, almost 100% of bank lending will have a debt service covenant involved. And then and the a, a debt service covenant for, for those who may not be familiar with that term is that it is, is an ongoing requirement for the property to maintain a minimum amount of cash flow. Usually, even though the, the loan might be sized, and this goes for both transitional and permanent loans, even though the loan might be sized going into a one 20, 125 cover, there'll be an ongoing covenant that it needs to maintain a 105, 110, somewhere in there. That means for every every dollar of, of mortgage payment, you need to have a dollar and 10 cents of, of cash flow. If you fall below that, it is an event of default. And that's that's a pretty yeah. heavy hammer that 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 you know that that bank can wield. So what we have done on the advisory side is we are working with the bank, with the borrower, as we go off and help to negotiate those loan docs to one, make sure that we have sufficient remedy time. Once you hit a 104 cover on a 105 covenant, 
you, we want to make sure that you know the the lender is not going to be in your driveway with a handout looking right. for those keys. On top of the, the 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 remedy time, in the event that you don't remedy the cash flow in a certain amount of time, whether it be six months, whatever it is, make sure that that the remedy beyond that is not value driven. So the the distinction there is the remedy on a on a resizing for value was that the bank could require a capital call to downsize the loan such that the in-place cash flow now maintains whatever that covenant is back to the 105 cover. So that can be a pretty big check to write. The alternative to that, and this is what we negotiate in our loan docs for our clients, is is more of a of an income covenant. So that rather than adjusting the, the loan itself, there is a posting of cash to bridge that delta between in-place cash flow and whatever that covenant might be. So if you are again using using our 105 cover, if you have a a dollar of cash flow and your your debt service is is at 105 cover, rather than downsize the loan, which could be a 20% yeah. check, you're giving a nickel to the to to the lender to hold into escrow until such time as that cash flow gets back above 105 for a certain period of time, yeah. typically, typically two quarters. What you're trying to, what you're negotiating is whether you're just, you're posting the difference between the 105 debt cover and the actual cash flow. That's exactly right. Okay. And then again, the debt cover, I mean, the math on that, just to define what we're talking about. I mean, that's NOI divided by your loan payment, you know, principal and interest. So actually, I guess on these IO like debt fund loans, I mean, are they, is it, are they sizing it with the principal and interest payment or are they just keeping it IO the whole time? Interest only. The sizing for debt cover for for debt funds is not it, that's not a primary metric. Okay. When they do look at that, because they will look at that, it's just not a primary metric. They'll be taking it off of that IO constant because oh, interesting. more often than not, a transitional debt fund deal will be interest only through through the primary term. There might be some amortization in the extension periods during that primary term. It's going to be interest only, and that is and that is what they'll be looking at. Okay, interesting. Well, that's another debt fund bank difference because no bank would size off of IO. That's that's no. exactly right. I think on on those deals where we had the debt service cover requirements, we were able to. We had two years where we could fund cash. I guess it wasn't clear where it's going. Thinking about it now, I'm sure it is in the docs, but not from my memory to fund the difference. I guess they would just hold it in a different. It's typically account, it's typically it's held similar. in escrow. It'll be held as additional collateral, and in for any of these negotiation points, you have to remember what is the perspective of the lender. Their perspective is typically, well, if I own this property, what do I need? What do I want to make sure that I'm not writing a check myself? Because all these lenders are not in the business of owning real estate. They don't, they don't want to own yeah. real estate. So they want to make sure that in the event they do have to take back those keys, that there is sufficient capital, sufficient structure in the loan to make sure that if it comes to that, they can now access that escrow account. They don't have to write a check yeah, themselves. It makes sense. And I mean, I think that, you know, for me as a borrower, like that's, I always kind of have this, the debt service coverage thing in the back of my mind, like which deals have it, which don't. Mm -hmm. And we haven't got to the, you know, Fannie and Freddie stuff yet, but that's one thing that I've just like loved. Like I sleep comfortably at night and I, you know, owe like way over a hundred million dollars of money on deals, but it's pretty much all non-recourse with no debt service coverage covenants. So hard to get, you know, jammed up on those kind of loans because I've seen, you know, other borrowers just kind of like from afar where they, you know, maybe they have like a retail portfolio and then you lose some big tenants and then this is not debt related, but then you might have a co-tenancy clause, mm -hmm. or not, which means if you lose a certain tenant, then the other tenants can 
pay less rent and now you drop below your debt service coverage covenant and then you need to be paying down your loan, you know, or just a cascade of, you know, horribles basically. So. And on the, and on the retail side, that is why co-tenancy clauses are, there's so much attention to yeah. them because of that very reason. Now on, on the multifamily side, you still get into that situation sometimes as well. But, you know, I will say that in evaluating the transactions that, that, that you have, you underwrite better than, than most of my clients. So I would, I, I don't blame you for sleeping well at night with the, the amount of time you put into your underwriting. Well, thanks. Yeah. Well, it's definitely more than, more than me doing it now or other people. Wait, thanks. And then, I mean, I think one, maybe one more transitional source that I had thought of, it's probably not typically thought of, but if you're doing, uh, and maybe the standard Fannie Freddie programs have this, but the, that I've, I've done this a few times on deals where we bought them. They were small balance loan sizes, you know, below seven and a half million dollars. If you're in a large market doing the Freddie Mac SBL program with the three, one, zero, zero, zero prepay. So mm-hmm. the prepay structure on that, you know, it's 3% year one and then drops to only 1% and zero thereafter. I mean, that worked out great for us on deals where we didn't need additional funding. It wasn't like a huge rehab. It was going to just be buy it. There's the rents were way below market, raise the rents or do a rehab amount that we could just fund out of cash. It wasn't going to be worth doing draws and stuff. You know, that's, that's something that we, you know, maybe I'll throw in the mix that that worked great for us. If someone's got, you know, a deal that that's, that size is really cost effective and simple that first year as we did the five year option, you know, it's interest only worked out great. That, that is actually a good point and a, and a great program that is, while not necessarily the intent of that product. It has been used, to your point, for that very for that very purpose, where you have a three percent year one prepay, one percent year two, and then open a par for the last three years, and the, and the increased cost of capital for that product over their base pricing is only thirty basis points. Which it's hard to say only thirty basis points, but if you look at the alternative of a debt fund when you're pricing entrance fees and exit fees, I mean that that is very cost effective capital. It does allow if you're looking to pay for those renovations out of cash flow, that does allow a, a nice option to lock in a, a, a very attractively priced product. Ease of execution is, 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 is pretty high relative to debt funds because it is, it is streamlined on, on being the SBL program. And I will say that if the intent is to pay out of cash flow, there are programs on the conventional side, conventional being north of seven and a half million dollars where you can effectively do the the same program so any fannie mae and freddie mac product of longer term does have a mod rehab a modification rehab program whereas if your intent is to invest a minimum amount per unit in renovations it varies a little bit between the agencies but we'll just say it's about ten thousand per unit you can check the box that it's a mod rehab go off and close a conventional typical fixed rate product. You have 12 months to complete the work out of cash flow. And once you do, you can then go back for a supplemental, a typically a supplemental, whereas any agency product has the ability to go and, and pull out additional cash with an increased NOI. But there's a premium associated with that. The supplemental, the rate's higher. It's much so. higher. It's, it's, the, the, the premium on that is about 50 basis points. Now, with the mod rehab program, when you check that box going in that, yes, this is mod rehab, as long as you fulfilled the, the requirements for that program, being that it's minimum amount per unit, minimum amount per unit overall was actually invested in the units, not in the community. Okay. 
then you can go and get that supplemental without that premium charge. Now you're still subject to then in market interest rates. So whatever that might be up yeah. or down versus where you're initially locked, but you don't have that, that premium. Okay, so that, yeah. that is also a cost effective way to go off. If you're comfortable and able to pay for those renovations out of cash flow, to go and really lock in today's interest rates while still doing the rehab that you're yeah. trying to do on the product. And then just in your initial funding, that's locked the whole time. That's not resetting. Correct. Once you're done. So now you're blending the overall, the overall capital stack for that debt of whatever you lock on the first day of closing. And that supplemental piece is then locked at that, that whatever the market nice. rate is at that time. Great. And then, I mean, you're saying do the, you're doing the renovations out of cash flow, but someone could just also raise the money or just fund it and sort of at closing with, with cash, right? Out of just, cash flow is, is more of a catch-all term. It, it, the, the, the point is that it, it cannot be capitalized through the loan. So it's not like a debt fund that would give you future funding to go effectuate your business plan. It has to be paid outside of the loan. That makes sense. And then on, let's say then this probably last thing, since we touched on the debt service coverage covenants, I mean, like Freddie SBL for the transitional stuff we talked about that doesn't have it as a loan default, then debt funds, do they typically have that? I would, I would assume not because we're transitional and we're sizing to a seven debt yield at the end. They do not. There will be close attention paid to the monthly cash flows. And if there is a perceived lack of cash flow or perceived n- below break even cash flow, that's when you structure an interest reserve. And that'll be built into the to the total project cost at closing. You can capitalize that at the same LTV or LTC as as the rest of the loan. And that'll be held by the lender. So in the event that you do fall short, you can now instead of having to write a check, you pull money out of your your interest reserve over here and you you pay Mr. Lender over here. Yeah, maybe let's get a little bit more into what an interest reserve is, because then that, you know, you can fund these deals that are you know, where you're going to do your value add, but the cash is actually going to be negative, most likely during this period. And then we want to get into that. So the, the, the purest example is, let's say you buy a vacant building. You have a, you have a developer that, that sells a building at C of O. Says, I don't want to deal with the lease up. I'll sell it to you. I'll leave some, some meat on the bone. You, Mr. Investor, can, can do it yourself. Well, now Mr. Investor says, okay, yes, I want to buy this. I want to lever it up as much as possible. We have no cash flow. Now, these are non-recourse loans, right? So inherently, the lender is looking for the debt service to come strictly from the property itself. While, a, while as a bank might look at the investor and be able to write a check themselves, a non-recourse lender, a debt fund in this case, will be looking for cash flow from the property. Well, there is none. So what do we do? We artificially create it by structuring in that, that interest reserve. So that is a separate pocket of money that is funded at close put into an account controlled by the lender. And then up until that point where you have break-even coverage on your debt, ca- on your debt flow, cash flow, you pull your mortgage payments from that interest reserve. That makes sense. Where on a recourse loan, maybe they're looking to the borrower, like they'll fund it. But on this, there's not, it's not recourse. They want to have that money sitting there knowing the payment's going to get made. Exactly. So if, if they were to have to take back the keys, they now have, just like the, just like the borrower does, they have this pocket of money from which they can pay their own debt service. Nice. Great. And then the, maybe I I think that's plenty then on the transitional deals, you know, so then let's say permanent capital. So we have, you have a stabilized multifamily deal, you know, we can touch on commercial too, because there's a lot of, there's other products that are probably just more prevalent there, like CMBS and Mm -hmm. whatnot. But let's say, so then permanent capital, like what are the options for that? 
For higher leverage, higher leverage being north of 65%, it's still the agencies. It's Fannie Mae and it's Freddie Mac. They continue to be the dominant market share leaders for multifamily. And that is more so than CMBS, which because of the way the rating agencies have to size the cash flow, they're never competitive. More so than life companies, because of the way that life companies need to size their loans, anything really north of 65%, it won't fit their box. The debt yield just isn't there. The loan per unit just is too high. It's not what life companies are, are set up to do. Now, if you back down to lower leverage, life companies are going to be more price competitive. But typically, the investors with whom I'm working are looking for more leverage. Maybe not necessarily last dollar, but not 50%. So that leaves, that leaves the agencies. And depending on the profile of the deal, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the pendulum kind of swings back and forth as far as who is more competitive at any given time. They look, smell, and feel very similar. There are some nuances between the two. But generically speaking, they can, they can both go up to 75%. 80% of the cash flow is there. And your cost of capital in today's world is mid-threes yep. with, with interest only available on the front end. Now, there are, again, some nuances to, to borrowing th through either of those agencies. But n much less arduous than CMBS. So the, the, it's really no surprise the attractiveness of those programs. and. The floodgates, so to speak, are remaining open. So the, the announcement for the 2022 allocations just came out. And both Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have both been allocated $78 billion to lend for 2022. That's an $8 billion per lender oh, wow. increase over 2021 numbers, which is 11% increase. Yeah. That just shows you that there is really, there was a lot of talk over the past two years about the, the reconfiguration of the agencies as they are today. But from what we are hearing right now, it's going to be business as usual and, and really more business as usual as, as they continue to push out that, those, those, those high cap allocations. Within, within that $78 billion, there is a mandate to continue to lend on affordable properties. The mandate is 50% of that $78 billion is targeted for affordable properties. And 25% of that $78 billion is mandated for AMIs less than 60%. So that's your, your average medium income for the area. At its core, the intent of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac is to promote affordable housing. And so by putting in those, those mandates, that is helping to make sure that, in this case, at least 50% of that money goes to promoting that affordability in, in U.S. housing stock. Now, that's not to say they won't lend on luxury properties with a 4 or $5 a foot rent. They will. It's just 50% of that does have to go to, to affordable product. And one thing that would be interesting for people to hear, like the, how they're viewing affordable, it's not just Section 8, Section 42 housing. It's just at a certain, it could be market rate, but just it needs to be at a certain rent level for the area. That's correct. So you, you look at, you look at the area income and you, you base the affordability off of that. So when you, when you originate a Fannie Mae loan, let's say you do go in and run and put together an affordability model. The affordability model is based on the census track for that, for that area. So you might have a property in Lincoln park that might have a $2 and 50 cent rent, 
that would still qualify based on the immediate area as affordable technically. Now you take that $2.50 rent, you put that out in, in a rural area. Obviously right. that is far and away two, two and a half times what the market bears. So it wouldn't be affordable out there, but, in, but just because if they look at the surrounding area, it, it, it would be classified as, as affordable. And Fannie and Freddie, they, at least I think Fannie, they had a lot of rent data going back. And actually one thing we bought, I think we bought it or it was free for our AI machine learning model. That was one of our inputs, like what they had over time, like the rents for an area. Cause we ended up getting it, our model down to the zip code uh, mm-hmm. for rent predictions. But that was one of the things cause they had a lot of good rent data in there. So it was interesting because then there is some place to look up what the rents are if you want to know if it's affordable or not based on their standards. And I think that might be like the data set we bought, which I'm not sure. And that, and that geographic distinction is important as you are looking at putting together a loan because the, the pricing benefit for affordable versus not, especially as you get further into the year and those allocations reach closer and closer to the cap, they can be pretty substantial. They can be every bit of 30, 40 basis points. And then have, has Fannie and Freddie, have they been hitting their caps in recent years? Or They have been. They have been. So two years ago or a year and a half ago, there was, there was some concern because they had reached their cap early. And so when they reached the cap early, pricing gapped out yeah. tremendously. The, the, the regulatory agencies that, that saw that realized what that was doing to the overall greater market, and they increased, they increased the cap for the rest of the year. And I think they've been managing that a little bit more effectively going forward, because if you look at the 2022 caps, increasing it by that $8 billion, that, that should provide enough dry powder for the market to go off and, and do what they need to do. Okay, nice. And then I don't think we've touched on sort of the different, there's a lot of different options with, I mean, especially in the SBL program that I guess I would know best, but so for, for Freddie, small balance, a lot of different prepay options, a lot of different things you can pick from interest only. I mean, maybe let's, since for, for the permanent loans, like if someone's borrowing, say Freddie small balance, we'll just start small, work our way up. Mm-hmm. Freddie SBL, like what are all the, the options out there? So with, with Freddie SBL, the small, small balance loan, it is designed to be an efficient source of capital for small properties. So it's minimum of five units, Minimum of a million dollars, million one uh, currently, but below seven and a half million dollars. The intent is to create as much efficiencies as possible to streamline the fee structure and the closing process for those smaller properties. So if you look at a conventional Freddie or Fannie, there are fees associated with closing. Not, not, a, not an exit fee or going in fee or anything like that, but you just look at the, whether it's the, uh, the legal fees or the the title review fees or X, Y, Z, whatever the case may be. Some of them are, some of them are fixed amounts. So when you start looking at some of those fixed amounts relative to a small loan bounce, you could have three, four, five points of closing fees. Well, on a, on a million and a half dollar purchase, that's now that's a big chunk that really puts everything out of whack. So, but you were saying if you're putting a conventional loan on it, a conventional loan on a smaller property. So then that's why they roll out this program. So this, the, the, the Freddie Mac SBL is designed to be streamlined. There's no negotiation of loan docs, very little negotiation of loan docs, and the, the process is, is very cookie cutter. Now, I think that Freddie Mac, to their credit, has realized that cookie cutter doesn't work for everyone. You need options. So what they have done is within the confines of that program, they have given options. You five, seven, 10-year financing, 
You can do a fixed or a hybrid. A fixed meaning that there is an, a balloon due of the outstanding balance upon maturity. A hybrid meaning that upon maturity, that loan converts to a floating rate, whereas you have a, a 1% exit to get out, but there's no covenant on a refi. So if you're worried about performance of the property or the market going the wrong direction around the same time as you're refinancing, then you could utilize that hybrid op- option. They have multiple options for prepayment. The, the base is a yield maintenance. They have a, the next step is a, a standard prepay, which on a 10 year is a five, five, four, four, three, three, two, two, one, one. And these numbers are the prepay that per is year. The, that is the, yes. So, so like, 5% of the outstanding balance in year one, 5% in year two, 4% in year three, et cetera, et cetera. On a seven year, it's five, five, four, four, two, two, one. And a five year, it's five, four, three, two, one. They have for an increased cost, you can do a soft step down of a three, two, one, one, one for a five year, a three, three, two, two, one, one, one for a seven year, and a three, 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 two, 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 one, 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 one for a 10 year. And then there's the, the most flexible, which you touched on earlier, only available on the five-year product, which is the 31000. Now, each of those different tiers of prepayment come at a cost, the yield maintenance being less expensive, the 31000 being the most expensive as an, as an add-on to your base, your base coupon. But if you look at it as an insurance policy, not knowing what your exit might be, or rather when your exit might be, in a lot of cases, it is worth going with one of those more flexible prepays because a yield maintenance penalty could be a very, very onerous number. If you, if you look, just do the basic math on a, I call it on a 10 year loan and you look to prepay in year one, that prepayment penalty could be every bit of 25, 30, 30 points. So now all of a sudden, if somebody comes in and, and says, you know, Drew, I love your property. I'm going to give you a two cap. All right, here, it's all yours. But now all of a sudden you have a 30 point penalty. Well, right. that, that hurts. So that's why now, now that you're expecting that investor to come in and say that, but at the same yeah, time, you never know. Or you and, and, that's, and that's the insurance policy. So that, that, that's the flexibility on the, on the prepay. The yield main, or excuse me, on, on the interest only, there is full term interest only available up to 65% leverage. There are several years available at higher leverage amounts depending on ultimately how high you push that leverage will dictate what is available for you with each year of interest only, again, adding basis points to the spread. That again, just comes down to math, less so of an insurance policy, but, but more is math. What is the return that I'm targeting? Does that front end interest only really help with, with the returns? Am I doing re- renovations funded out of cash flow? I know that in year three, it's going to be it's going to be a a higher rent, so I can afford to pay amortization in year three. But years one and two, I want yeah. that IO constant. So these are all different menu options that a borrower has. And what we do is we sit down, and we, we we've had this conversation before. When you sit down with the borrower, you find out what is your business plan. What do you think your business plan is? What do you think that your business plan isn't? And and get a feel for what really is the investment strategy for that asset? Typically, you want to match up the term with your likely investment period. But beyond that, that's now when you have the prepayment flexibility you can build in on top of that. And if you you know you're going to be a three-year holder, you don't want a 10-year loan. Right. If you know you're going to be a 10-year holder, you don't want a three-year loan unless 
you know something about the market that you know, the rest of us don't. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's there's, there are a lot of options and it can seem a little daunting to, to wade through all that. But that's, you know, that's where we come into play. It's just to have that conversation to know other questions to ask and to know what can be done with that loan to tailor it to what we're hearing from, from the client. It's a great program. I mean, that's, I think what I've done the most loans just by like number is Freddie SPL and it's, it's totally customizable. You know, you just look at sort of the, the sheet or whatever, if you, if you will, and go, okay, this, this loan, I, you know, I think we'll be in it for five years. I'll, you know, it's this in, we don't need to refine in the meantime. So why pay more interest and do a mm-hmm. 10 year? I'll do the five year. And then what you never know, maybe we want to sell earlier. So let's not, let's not do a yield maintenance. We'll pick one of the step downs, you know, cause I've ended up, I've done a lot of different loans within that, where if you, if you know, you're going to add a lot of value and you want to put a new loan on the property, then you go with the most flexible. Or if you're not, it's a longer term hold, then you go with, you know, like a 10 year step down. Right. You know? So that's what we've done the, the most loans with on our side. And one thing that I've learned and it almost maybe through, you know, through you and then also just that program too, cause it's like lays it out and you have to decide cause the difference in rate, I mean, you would know the exact add-ons, but like if you did the five year, I think the way they treat it is it's like the yield maintenance, you take 20 bips off the base rate. So then if you do the most flexible three, one, zero, zero prepay, you're adding 30 basis points on to the base rate. Correct. So then it's a half percent difference, you know, so you got to really think about your plan. Cause mm-hmm. if you're just, well, no, I just want the lowest rate. I'm keeping this thing for five years. I don't, you know, that's what I'm focused on. Like you can essentially, you know, you'd be a half percent lower than if the person who wanted the most flexible. So I've, so that's something I ended up thinking a lot about. And then I really started rethinking about how I look at the loans or I'm looking sort of from the, like the, the sort of what does the end look like and just working backwards where if you're, you know, and, and actually last year, three, three of the deals we bought, we assumed the loans from people who did an agency yield maintenance deal mm-hmm. and their business plan wasn't to keep it for like 10 years. Right. They were all, they're all developers. And so they, but that's just what they did. I would assume they were just looking for max proceeds or max proceeds to keep it in the, in one instance, in the full term interest only bucket. And so then when they wanted to sell, then they, you know, the buyer pool is probably limited. Right. And then that, you know, it's a great opportunity for us because we're able to assume those loans where you can do the paperwork and all the, the brain damage on that. And but um, not good for them. I mean, but so then that's, so I've learned that just kind of seeing what other people are doing and then looking at my own deals going, okay, if I'm, no, I'm going to sell this thing in two years, well, let's just put like a three-year loan on it with flexible prepay. Don't do a 10-year fixed yield maintenance. You're right. going to pay 10% to get out or have to sell it to somebody who's going to assume it. And, and I'll say that, you know, that analysis, that conversation, that's, that's what I do. That's frankly where I add the value. To go off and actually access these various programs, especially SBL. It's not hard. There's, there's a number of lenders like CBRE in the market where you can pick up the phone, you can call them and they'll say, here, here's your, here's your small yeah. balance quote. But what that doesn't have is that, that discussion, that analysis, because frankly, that lender, they're looking to get out money. My, my job as an intermediary is to work with the client and bring them to the lender and have that conversation and make sure that that, I mean, not, not everyone is going through the same thought process, you know, that you are, which is, which is unfortunate because a lot of times some of those investors can get taken advantage of by that lender. Who's just really just looking to push paper and, and close that loan to be able to know, this is what you should be thinking of. These are the pressure points. Well, what, what about, what about this? Should you consider this? I mean, those conversations are really, 
really where I at the value. Like the one thing you do great at is the advisory piece, right? Being able to look at the business plan and the debt options where like you, you can access all the types of debt and see what others are doing and then are able to give great advice. So that's one thing I've always appreciated. No, I appreciate so. you saying that. And then I think, so then that's, you know, probably, and you know, I guess Fannie, they also have a small balance program. It's that's, it's, it seemed like for, you know, my, you know, point where I've been using the SPL program, I think all, but maybe two of the loans were, have been Freddie. So mm-hmm. then, I mean, Fannie, it's more or less a similar program. It's just kind of just whatever they kind of flip flop on who's more competitive. It it's like. a very similar program. It's actually the, it was the first small balance program, you know, way back when it was, you know, called a three max, five max, cause it was th- maximum 3 million, yeah. or 5 million for the urban areas. And then it went away, then it came back again. And the right now, and, and I, and I, I do mean right now, they are, they are priced much wider than Freddie Mac. Now that, that pendulum swings back and forth as far as which one is more competitive. In the in the in the near past, the Freddie Mac program has been has been more competitive, so that's where most of the business does go. Now there are again nuances where you might want to go with Fannie Mae versus Freddie Mac, and pay that extra. But those are very rare exceptions. So as it stands right now, Freddie Mac is is really the the dominant small balance lender. Although that could change next week if if Fannie Mae were to decide, okay, we want to better our cost of capital and put out more money in that segment. That's really yeah. what it is. It's managing again, that allocation by raising and lowering the price of that money. So then is, I mean, then is Fannie just kind of more focused on doing the larger the, the conventional program then, or what's the currently they are. Yes. Okay. Then maybe let's get into, get into that then. So we touched on the SBL options. And if you're have a loan that's over 5 million in some markets or seven and a half in the, I just call it the major markets. Mm-hmm. Is that the right term or um, main markets? In the main markets, I mean, so then what, is, what does that look like? So it's going to, in terms of the sizing metrics, it's, it's going to be very similar. It's going to be a max 80% on acquisition, max 75% on a, on a cash out refi, size down to a minimum 125 cover with interest only available up to 75%. Below 70%, you bring in the, the possibility of full-term interest only. Below 65%, you bring in the possibility of full-term interest only and, a, and an entity carve out. And the... I'd say the biggest drawback to Fannie Mae financing, besides the closing process, which can be a little arduous, is that for the most part, in terms of cost-effective programs, their prepayment structure is strictly yield maintenance. Now, they, if you look at a 10-year loan, it's yield maintenance through nine and a half, then 1% for three months, then par at three months. They do have options where on a 10-year loan, you could do seven years of yield maintenance and then 1%, but... And actually beyond that, you could tailor it even further with yield maintenance through whatever specified period you want, then 1%. But that add-on in pricing gets expensive very quickly. Interesting. So what we're seeing for the most part is yield maintenance all the way through nine and a half, an occasional seven-year yield maintenance, but for the most part, all the way through. Now, the way to look at that is almost like a CMBS loan in that you're only going to put in a Fannie Mae loan if you know you're not going to sell it in the near. Yeah. Now, they do have shorter durations. They have five and seven-year money. Five-year money isn't all that competitive right now, again, with the way it's pricing. But on a 10-year, it is, it is still very, very aggressive capital. And if you are a long-term holder, then it is definitely worth consideration to pursue that program because of the way that you can structure in that, that interest only on top of an already aggressive pricing. And then really, so then the fixed rate, you're 
you're thinking it's, you know, if you're a borrower going in, it's going to be yield maintenance for the agency. And then they do have floating rate programs. They do have floating rate programs. In terms of floating rate, Freddie Mac's program is, is more competitive than, than Fannie Mae. Fannie Mae's program is designed really more for larger institutional. And I say larger, I mean, 75 million plus to make it, make it worth everyone's time. Mm -hmm. Whereas there are more flannered options for Freddie Mac. I've seen just hearing about a lot of borrowers and like the, you know, really low cap rate kind of, you know, markets, the, the Phoenixes, the Texas and Florida, where they like, it seems like they're either doing a debt fund or they're going the, the floating rate conventional through one of the agencies. So I guess you need be- to, you need that IO constant to make, to make positive leverage on, on the asset yeah. when you're buying at a, at a three and a half cap. If you're obviously, if you're over three and a half on your coupon, right. You're negative leverage. That's not, not helping any. So then what, I guess, so then, okay, for multifamily, I mean, other sort of permanent sources, I mean, you hear, you know, I I see a lot of, you know, conversation of HUD loans, mm-hmm. you know, where the initial rate is exciting. They mm-hmm. leave out the the mortgage insurance MIP, premium yeah. added on, but they, and the fact that it costs an arm or leg to close it, they, you know, leave that out when they put the loan on for two and a half, but maybe why don't, so the, let's see the. The 223F program, is that that's the stabilized one? The 223F is for acquisitions or refinances. And that is a, it can go up to 85% of value with a, it's a 35 year self amortizing loan with prepayment flexibility after 10. So it's really, really look at as a 10, 35. So you have a 35 year, 35 year AM. What's the prepay structure? So yield maintenance through year 10. And then what's, it's how, a, it's a fixed decline through year 10 and then open after that. Oh, okay. So fixed decline, just like a, a step down. Correct. I'm sorry. Okay. That's more flexible than I would have thought. I never. It, it is so the the fle- it, the product itself is is attractive. And the you know the the leverage going in, the cost of capital. To your point, you're even with the MIP, you're hovering right around three percent. The the you know the, the leverage that, that that you can achieve. The the issue is closing process is long. I mean, for for the 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 two twenty three, you're looking at every bit of six to nine, sometimes more months, and there are restrictions on what you can do after close in terms of the number of distributions of cash per year, in terms of your reporting requirements, the auditing requirements. So to have a even a middle market borrower use that program, it usually winds up not not being all that efficient because you not that you need a separate department to manage that loan, but you almost do. You need someone who's going to be you have, you need to have books that are that are kept properly that are up to the requirements of HUD. And again, that, you know, that, you know, the one distribution of cash flow per year, that is not often what middle market investors are looking for when they, when they invest. In yeah. That's an interesting restriction. Yes. I didn't, didn't know about that. And then the, the other program that you mentioned that was, was, it's for construction or heavy rehab is the 221 D4, which also goes up to 85% of value that has a 40 year amortization. Again, the cost of capital is pretty strong. It's actually cheaper than the than the F right now, but it's it's the same same scenario in terms of what it looks like during during that stabilized period. And what I have found in my experience is that for most properties, especially in Chicago proper, because of the constraints that they have on cost, both yeah. on a statutory mortgage limit, meaning they can only lend so much per unit type, as well as the minimum prevailing wage requirements for your contractors. Once you put in those minimum prevailing wage 
in, into the cost budget and inflates it too high. Yep. I was sizing up a, a development loan up in Uptown for a, an asset. And I forget the exact number, but when they came back with the, the prevailing wage, they would have had to pay their drywaller something like $80 an hour. And, and the contractor said, well, that's great. Even if I give you a quote at this, I can't pay my guys $80 an hour because okay. now the next job, they're going to expect that. Yeah. And so yeah. between what it does to the cost structure going in and the, the willingness of a, of a GC to, to pay those wages, Interesting. It, it winds up, up scuttling the deal. But we, I was at a place I was working, this would be 2009, so not a lot of options for capital. We were looking at a apartment development deal in Texas, in the, in the Dallas area. And that was, we were going towards that because the, the Davis-Bacon wages didn't really move mm-hmm. the needle that much there. And then basically the only game in town. And then, I mean, one plus with both the, both the HUD programs that we're talking about, it's, it's non-recourse the whole time. You know, even with the construction one, you obviously have to complete the project and do other requirements, but at least the loan, it's non-recourse. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, at that time, this is the only option for that. And even still, you know, until like the emergence of debt funds, it would have been pretty rare right. to have a non-recourse construction loan. Right. So. It does, it, it does make sense typically in the Southern markets and the Southeast markets, but for whatever reason, as you go North into the Midwest, those prevailing wages start to get high in a hurry. And it's, they're, they're far and away higher than, than union wages. Oh, interesting. Okay. I did not, wasn't aware of that. So then I think that's plenty on maybe on the agency. So then let's, I mean, be pretty uncommon for multifamily deal, but let's just touch on CMBS. I mean, mm-hmm. it could be people looking at other product types. So, so the, 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 the two types of two additional sources of capital that we haven't talked about is live companies and CMBS. CMBS, which is securitized borrowing. So you, you, your, your lender makes the loan and then packages it up into a, into a bond, sells it off into the secondary market. It's actually very similar to what Freddie Mac is doing. So Freddie Mac now is securitizing almost 100% of their loans. CMBS, if you look at the traditional CMBS lenders, they are subject to the rating agencies. The rating agencies are the ones that really drive what is that cost of capital. Does it fit into this box, this box, or this box? Well, when the rating agencies look at the cash flow, they have to do certain things to the underwriting. Just like Fannie Mae has to take a the look at a, a, a trailing three for their for their income, trailing twelve for other income. They'll take in place expenses and, and inflate it by three percent. Very formulaic underwriting. Yeah. The rating agencies also have a very formulaic underwriting, but for whatever reason, that formula is is much more strict in that they are taking just for example on a, in a in, in the Chicago market, whereas a three five percent vacancy tops. I think the rating agency requirement is they have to underwrite it to a 13 or 14 percent to size the loan to size the loan on top of the inflation of of expenses and below the line reserves off of which they yeah. base their cash flow. So when you actually get down to a bottom line cash flow number, not only does it it push down the the proceeds, but your your cost of capital is usually if not on top of in excess of where the agencies are. So yeah. That's why you're just not seeing a ton of CMBS loans in that market. Now, that being said, where, where they do come into play is potentially some secondary or tertiary markets that the agencies will not go to for whatever reason. Student product, which the agencies, again, have pretty strict regulations on. Some of the, I guess, the non-traditional multifamily. That is where, to the extent that you are seeing CMBS in that market, 
that's where that's being utilized. It's 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 really those those markets where the, the agencies can't lend or that those products the agencies can't lend. So generically, you know, again, you can you can get term IO at 65, 68%. So that is good. But 68% of what is the right, question. Right. So yeah. I mean is if you look if you're now comparing proceeds apples to apples, that 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 CMBS quotes can be much lower. I mean then they're gonna lose to the agency every every time in terms of uh competition on loan sizing and then, then they're left with the commercial product types on to lend on where if you're in office or something where that's already a 13 percent vacancy that's not that's exactly of a, right doesn't move the the needle as much what about le- life codes why don't we so life companies are competitive as, as you mentioned earlier on lower leverage again because of the way that they size so i recently took a 16 unit deal in, in in the uptown market, good clean deal. I mean, right right down the fairway in terms of in terms of cash flow occupancy, good history and everything. You know, you you go to the the equity market today, and that's a five cap, if okay. not if not below, right? The life companies they have to size to a minimum most size to a minimum cap rate, and it's not it's not set like the rating agencies. Each each lender is going to be a little bit different. But for example, this this particular lender. Was sizing to? I mean, they would. They, they had to take a six and a half cap. Oh, they wouldn't go okay. below six and a half cap. They'd, they'd lend seventy five percent off of that. But once you go do that math, it just didn't make sense. Right. So that's usually why it winds up really only working with lower leverage property yeah. and typically bigger, more institutional garden style complexes or 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 the high rises. To I mean, there are while there are a a number of lenders that will lend five to ten million dollars of loan amount. Where you get most competitive for cost of capital is going to be north of 25, north of 30 on on, on the bigger institutional product. In which case, now your your cost of capital is, I mean, it's in the twos. Wow. So you compare that to the agencies. You compare the the ease of execution, the fact that you have a balance sheet, the fact that you have a known servicer. I mean that that's where that's where that that gets competitive. But Seven times out of ten, that the product just isn't going to fit a life company. Now, on any given transaction, I'll still size it up to a life company sizing and make some make some calls to make sure that we are checking all the boxes. But six and a half times of those seven yeah. times out of ten, it winds up going to the the, the the agencies. I mean, it just really would make sense if you already were going to plan on putting forty percent down and you want to like more flexibility, you know, than this a uh, good program for. You and I mean it's not that much flexibility, but maybe more than the agencies at least. It is because you do have a point of contact. It is the the life companies. They are portfolio lenders. They are keeping that loan on their book, right? So it's their loan. So if you if you need an accommodation, you don't have to call. Now with with you know the the agencies, for example, when you know if you had an, an issue with one of your one of your loans that you know that, that we originated together, you could call. Them. So that's a little bit different. CMBS obviously is a whole other animal where you're calling a, a completely third-party servicer that probably hasn't even looked at your loan until you called them. But the, with the life companies, it's still very much a a relationship because that loan is kept on book and CBRE or really any of the intermediaries for the most part does have that servicing portfolio. So you do yeah. have that that yeah, that primary point of contact. Which you know, if I if I brought you to a life company, you you could you could call me in addition to, to calling the actual portfolio manager who, you know, is looking at that loan pretty frequently. Makes sense. Then I think probably one more like permanent option I had thought of was like, this, again, through a bank where they have, they can get 
competitive on rate a lot of times when they introduce a swap product mm-hmm. so we've done a, f- a few of those where these weren't apartment deals because you know we, right we've just gone to the agencies but it got actually pretty close to that where the, we were able to get 10-year fixed you know bank money and then the bank went out and they bought a, a bought a swap and on one of those when we sold the property we got paid fifty thousand dollars on payoff because it was you know, it goes we were, the right way right yes. it, rates move whatever direction they need to go to have your swap or something so um that was that was interesting because we had no idea what the payoff was going to be in terms of the fee because the actual mm-hmm. loan there was no prepay fee because they for the bank it's like a floating rate product right. and then which is whatever cost to break your swap and then on that one we were getting paid to break it that is that is certainly an option the the negatives to that is if you are looking for longer term money often you don't want to tie up capacity with your bank good point and and really reserve that money for for more traditional bank type transactions. Now, that being said, if, if that swap is, is priced competitively enough, well, now it might make some sense to use that capacity. But between the recourse considerations and the capacity considerations, typically that's not one of the first things we look at. But to your point, it, it does serve a purpose under the right circumstance. And when you say capacity, like banks, they have a legal lending limit. And then once you're at that, they can't extend you more money. Exactly right. right. Because with that bank, we did, we did hit the limit once, and we were under contract on a deal, and they were like, "Okay, we're we're at our limit. We're we're at the limit." You know, we didn't realize this, but thankfully, we had at a place I worked prior. They had were doing a bunch of loans with a bank, and their content was the president. This is in Minnesota, so then I called that guy, and he basically got us a loan in less than a month. That so helps totally delivered. So that was that was a good that one I'll always remember. Well, nice. Well, I think that's probably it for like the sources of capital. I mean, what about like? you know, any trends you're seeing, you know, one thing, I guess my sort of uh, trend that I, I thought, you know, was kind of out there was just really obviously the emergence of debt funds, but Mm -hmm. even I had felt like on deals we were looking at, they were even now competitive, like going head to head with all the other lenders on stabilized deals where let's say you want, you're going to buy something in Texas and it's going to be a low cap rate going in. I mean, a debt fund, you can do a 10 year full interest only loan at relatively high LTV non-recourse, right? Most debt funds are set up to do shorter term money. There'll be three years, five years with extensions. To go out and do 10-year, that's just not what they're equipped to do because most of these funds are designed to to cycle through their money. So then what product was that? Is something with an A and a B piece, I remember. I thought it was a debt fund all the way. Maybe it was a life company, A piece, B piece, debt fund. So it is, yes. The one product that, that we talked about previously was it was a, a private equity fund that happens to have a debt fund. But the, the B piece in that instance was coming from a from a second source within, within the firm. Oh, okay. So in that instance, that group was partnering with a life company to offer okay. interest only borrowing capabilities up to 80%, some cases 80% plus, seamless seamless to the borrower. So in that case, you were taking 10-year money from the life company because that's that's what they do. Yep. And that, that would be sized internally to whatever the number is, 55%. That 55% up to whatever the top end leverage would be, we'll just use 80%. That was coming from that private equity firm. And then it, it is all serviced by one single point of contact. So it is, it is, again, seamless to the borrower. So we are seeing structures like that that are coming more into play. And I think that is really in reaction to the low cap rates that yeah. we're seeing in the market. And you know, you ask about trends, and I think that is that is the biggest trend right now is just the the aggressiveness of of the pricing. And 
you have now not every market is is the same, but to have the year over year rent growths the last eighteen months is a bit of an anomaly in some markets and some it's not. But to have that rent growth, to have that that continued cap rate compression everywhere, we are seeing much more equity, both domestic and foreign, flow into U.S. multifamily. We were seeing it in, in the industrial sector as well, but in multifamily, you know, especially in that as people are looking for their risk adjusted returns on their portfolio, more and more people are going into real estate which is almost funny to say because I feel like we've been saying that now yeah. for, for 15 years plus right. as far as, oh, all the foreign money is coming into real estate, all the foreign, well, we mean it this time. Yeah. We really mean it this time, but it continues to happen. And to, to have a stabilized deal that trades in the, in the low three cap rate is, is yeah. pretty remarkable. No, it's, it's interesting to see. And then you hear these anecdotes for like an office building in you know, like Seoul, Korea, those sell for two caps. I mean, that could be way wrong, that statement. So we should, you know, someone should, Check that before uh, check, using check that it, but that, but it's like, so then, then they come in and they're like, oh, look at these apartment deals that, you know, three and a half caps and we can borrow, you know, two if we need it at the low from a life company. And, you know, this, like the numbers actually work for them for what they want to make. Mm-hmm. So, and I'll say another, another thing that we're seeing, and I am admittedly not as knowledgeable on this market, but the single family rental home yeah. is, it is becoming while it was always out there in the periphery it is now very much mainstream yep. between between the lenders that'll lend on that the funds that are buying it and the the really the purpose built communities that are that are springing up everywhere it's it, that is the i think the next big evolution within the multifamily sector is that single family for rent development and there's already you know, big buyers for that you know with the blackstone mm-hmm. and their invitation homes and the he in phoenix one of the like the sam in our office he had sourced like multiple off-market single-family rental communities because all the developers they sort of realize the way the cap rates are now and how high the rents got in a lot of these places it's you know a bunch of you know it's touching just what it would take to sell these one off right and then on we do have one under loi now and that that developer his like reason for selling in bulk it wasn't necessarily oh i'm getting you know, getting a higher price or anything. He'd then, if you sell it at once, he's thinking I'm doing a 1031 out of mm-hmm. this. This is more like an investment property. Now I'll roll it into the next deal and delay paying my taxes. So then it's kind of interesting where we find ourselves like right in the middle of that. We're in the, right. you know, where it's growing. And then with the single family rental deal. So, well, it makes sense from a developer standpoint. <clears throat> yeah. Why, why delay your exit from a development? Maybe you're taking a bit of a haircut all in, but if you look at not only time value of money or opportunity cost or call it what you will, but also the interest rate risk that you could be taking by delaying to go off with one execution and get out. Uh, makes a lot of sense. Well, that's what we were telling the guy when we were trying to get the price down, like one of the rounds we got to close in May. So saying what's the interest rate can be in May. Right. But you know, odds are we're doing that floating rate anyway. So, but then what, any other like trends or anything that you can, you can think of? You know, I think that, uh, and, and this is more macro, but really just the the flight around the country, the the of what we're seeing into the city, out of the city, depending on the markets, with what COVID has done to the workforce, and and you can see this in, I mean, and, th- and this is again, it's macro, right? It goes through not only the multifamily market, but it, it goes through the office market, it goes through the, you know the retail market. Yeah. It's 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 what's practically driving the, the the industrial market right now is really that 
where, what is housing going to look like tomorrow, whenever tomorrow might be? When you had, you know, the early stages of COVID, when you had the, the, the younger renters leaving and going back to move in with their parents, yeah. now moving back to the city, or I don't necessarily need to live in the CBD anymore because I can work from home for, for three, three days a week. So I don't mind living up in, in one of the far north neighborhoods or moving out to, or moving out to the suburbs. So, I mean, really tracking that employment-based housing, where are, the, where are the renters going? And in addition to that, the, the generational moves. Yeah. At what point do you see the, you know, the next generation moving you know, from the city to suburban locations, if at all? And that, you know, I think that is going to continue to drive really what sectors of the multifamily market are going to be hot going forward. And I don't have an answer for that. I'm just saying that's what I think everyone you know should be looking at. And it's really, it's different, you know, for each MSA, you know, like I think in, I mean, Denver, for example, like the suburbs there, I know those have been hot just like for basically forever, mm-hmm. you know, where, you know, you have traffic there obviously, but it's not like what you would face in LA or Chicago or these other places where like far out suburbs, you know, are not as desirable as being in the city, mm-hmm. you know, so definitely different by city. And then interesting, you know, I think the whole with, COVID and people moving out to the suburbs, like a lot of that, I think it just pushed it forward, you know, where you know, I'm sort of at an age, you know, with one kid where, you know, it could be easy to go to the burbs now and go, well, I'm going to, you know, I was going to go there anyways, you know, in the right. next five years, might as well just go now. I'd already owned a house that I just, you know, already had a place with room to stay. So mm-hmm. I didn't need to move, but the, you know, that that's definitely how I saw that. And then, but now those people are in the suburbs, they, they like it, you know, and then what are their next round of friends following them out or they're staying in the city. That'll be the, the trend to watch. Definitely. What maybe then just jumping back to stuff related to loans, like what I had mentioned, you know, kind of maybe working sort of like back to front or whatever, thinking about the prepay mm-hmm. uh, when you're originating any other stuff that you can think of, like this is like, you know, I'm sort of answering the question, but you know, I would say if they're asking me like, you know, debt service cover prepay, like what, what sort of things as a borrower want to be thinking about that maybe are like less common to be thinking about when you're originating a loan. I think again, just matching up the loan product with the with the business plan is the most important thing, and that is a very different answer depending on whether you are a a single investor who owns a single five flat, if you're a middle market investor, if you're if you're more larger scale middle market or for institution. That's that's that's, that's Fundamentally, each one has a different investment philosophy. So understanding the different products, not necessarily rushing into one just because you've, you've filled out a form on a website and you have 14 different brokers calling you saying, oh, yeah. I get you this, I get you this. Understand what the product is. And fundamentally beyond that, the real estate underlying it is, is, is obviously important. Just because you can get a loan at full-term interest only doesn't necessarily mean you should. Yeah. And doesn't necessarily mean you should put it on, on one particular property. Right. Not that it's bad to engineer a return because there's a time and a place for that. But if you if the deal only makes sense because you can get full term interest only, you know, yeah, maybe you right. should reevaluate. And that's actually something I've wondered now is, you know, cap rates have compressed so much, but then at the same time, the debt funds are getting way more aggressive, like all the capital is getting way more aggressive. So then, you know, you, you know, it's more comfortable to pay a three and a half cap and, you know, deal we were looking at we were talking about with the a and the b piece that was in dallas like more comfortable to pay a three and a half cap in dallas if you can borrow tenure interest only in the low threes mm-hmm. from you know i called it a debt fund loan but then what would you call that because it's like debt fund and life company so then i would i would i would just call that an ab loan okay for lack of a better term 
And now in that instance, and to your point, I think, you know, the markets in which you're looking, you're there for a reason because of, because of the rent growth, yep. because of identifying opportunistic properties where there is upside. I mean, if you correct me if I'm wrong, but I would doubt that you would just go buy a, a three and no. a half cap deal. If you know that in 10 years from now, it's going to be a three and a half cap deal. Right. And that's just, again, you're not a pension fund. Your cost of capital isn't 1%. Right. So you're looking opportunistically for, for, for rent growth or NOI growth, yeah. however you may get there. I think that's, that's different than, again, putting a, an IO deal, a full-term IO deal on a, an artificially low cap rate transaction. Yeah. That I think gets everyone, gets, gets everyone in trouble. And yeah. not unlike what happened back in 2007, 2008, when the conduits at the time were sized into a 1-0 cover at 80% leverage and didn't really care what happened tomorrow. Well, right. we all know what happened when tomorrow came. Because if you got a debt fund loan and you're sizing to a seven debt yield, you know, in three years and then something big changes and you needed to, you know, all this rent growth, all this to be at a place you can pay the, you can refi the loan at a normal like loan sizing, right? Now you're stuck, you got to sell or you're, you know, yeah, if the market dropped then you're kind of, you're even stuck from selling now. So there's definitely a risk to that. Exactly right. So, and we're in these markets, not. If you bought it a three and a half cap and then cap rate stayed the same for 10 years, that deal actually might not look <laughs> You're so right. bad. You're but right. the, if, you know, uh, we at least don't underwrite like that. If we were in that deal, we're going to assume it's going to go up to at least a four, you know, over 10 years. But that, you know, we're, it, what's interesting and especially in, <clears throat> in the places where rents have ran up so much in the last year, there's a lot of loss to lease, you know, meaning just the rents are below market. So then you might be going into the three and a half cap, but. You just put the rents to where they would be today, and then you're already over a four. Right. That's and that's now all of a sudden now like you're getting to a cap rate that's comparable to some Midwest states. You know, I mean, we've looked at deals in Wisconsin and Minnesota and other places around here, as well, and those are in the four caps. Sure. And then, so we've really liked those. You know, the growth markets where you're finding a deal where there's lost to lease because then you can get it to a four something cap year two, and now instead of being in Wisconsin, you're in Phoenix, mm -hmm. you know, and then I, and there's a different rent growth picture from there. So we've, that's been our, our strategy and what we bought where we can't, can't really make the numbers work for what we're trying to do, just buying a stabilized deal. And you do have to, in today's market, you, again, I don't, I don't want to make it sound like engineering a return is a bad thing because it, it, there is, it, there is certainly appropriate cir circumstances where, where that's right. But when in a market where it is as competitive as it is, that you do need to find those opportunities where you can and finding, I'll call it a hidden opportunity. And I don't necessarily love that term, but a hidden opportunity in that, whether it's below market rents or knowing that if you do add a washer and dryer, you're going to pop rents 200 bucks or whatever the case may be. You do have to go find those opportunities where you can both on market and off market. And, you know, I've, I have talked to people on the phone before who call and say, you know, I was given your number. I want to get into to, to investing. I, I, I want to buy anywhere from, you know, five units to 25 units. I have however much equity. Where do I find them? Well, oh. that's, I mean, that's, that's the yeah. issue, right? To, to go off and find those deals. I mean, that's, that's a full-time job. And by the time you look at, you look at the, you know, the listings for the most part, with all due respect to you know, the, the, the brokers who you know, have been on this show before me and that they're very good at what they do, but it's because they're very good at what they do that those opportunities aren't very, aren't very lucrative, right? Yeah, so to really make the return that makes, that makes your investors happy by the time that it, it gets 
to the brokerage community. And they are good. And they, they, they will milk every last dollar in purchase price for their clients. Well, that's as, as an investor, it, it takes more than that. You need to, you really need to almost have a full-time staff finding those off-market deals yeah. to make those returns happen. So I think that's, you know, great hearing about the, you know, trends and kind of what's going on today. I mean, what about, I think we kind of touched on different types of deals for a second there, but like, let's say you, you, you do have a deal and you're going to, you know, we're going to present it to, to the debt market. Like what, what should a borrower be doing kind of in terms of how they present their deal or what kind of advice would you have for them? First and foremost, know your deal. That, I mean, that's, it's important to know your deal, not only to know, you know, the pitfalls or opportunities in any transaction, but it's also, if you're out talking to equity or talking to debt or talking to an intermediary, the more you know your deal, the more confidence you have in your deal, the better that you can articulate what the, what the intent is, what is the opportunity, what are the challenges? I mean, that is, that is first and foremost, the, the most important thing. If you just have a deal and you bring it to a lender and say, here, what do you think? Everyone is extremely busy right now. And if there is very little thought or presentation put into a, a transaction that's proposed to a lender, you're going you're gonna to get from them what you, what you give them. Now, yeah, it makes sense. that's part of my role as well, right? So when I go to my lenders, I, I do put together a, a package. I will look at a transaction. I'll look at a borrower's pro forma. I'll look at their assumptions. I'll ask some questions. Okay, what do you think about this? Why are you coming up with this? Where'd you get this? Just so that not only do I understand the deal and I can in turn sell it, but that when the lender is asking me questions, I don't have to go back every single question to the borrower and saying, okay, what about this? What about yeah, this? What else? Mark on it. So make sure you know your deal and you do your homework going in. Now that's not to say that when you have a conversation with me specifically, you have to have all your ducks in a row. My right. preference as an intermediary, as an advisor is to be brought into a deal early. That's where I can add the most value because yeah. I can help you come up with some of those questions that you need to be asking and, and help tailor ultimately what that, again, lack of a better word, sales pitch will be yeah. to the lender. Cause it is, it is a little bit of a sales pitch. And I've, ex I've explained this point to the other people here where if it's going to you, like it's, it doesn't need to be perfect yet. It's like you could send another one you know, if it's a performer or model or something. Whereas if that was to your directly to the lender, well, now they, they have it. This is then they'd be like, why did the expenses drop and the deals better now? And, you exactly know, because well, right. we you know, we would say it's because we were still evaluating it, but they're thinking, well, okay, which one should I use now? Right. So you don't want to be sending too many things once you're ready to go. But for you, we're coming to you for advice and what, what options should we go with? And then it's, then it's presented to the, to the lenders. That's right. Now, and that's not to say that you can't have preliminary conversations and that there, sometimes there are transactions that fit outside of that formulaic box, right? Where you just need to go have that conversation. And that happens all the time. And then we'll go and We'll preface it, our conversation with that lender, say, this is a work in progress. We just got the information. We're still figuring things out. But generally speaking, here is the sketch of the deal. And a seasoned lender will understand that and be able to give the feedback that, you know, yeah. that, that I need to then in turn start coming up with, okay, what does it ultimately look like? But still, you need to know, maybe not to the decimal point know your deal by the time it, it goes out the market, but you should still know your deal. I'll yeah. say that's what one thing that you and your team do exceptionally well is even I think 
during the evaluation period to get to the point of, okay, is this a deal that we share outside this office or do we just kill it? Right. You have, you've already digested that information and, and looked at the, the supporting information in the market. And to, I mean, to your credit, your team does a very good job with that. So we're not sending deals that we're like thinking we might not pursue typically where we, we do ask a lot of questions, figure out how the loans are sized. Cause mm-hmm. then we just can do it on our own initially. And then we don't need to ask every time like, Oh, what was the, how does that work with the debt fund? And then we just kind of can model it up. So nice that, then I think what about, so, okay, that's how to position your deal, but then what about how to position yourself as a borrower? Cause one thing actually in the example, when you were saying someone new calling, saying I have money to invest, like what, what would you recommend? Actually what was going through my head was where I thought you might be going with that is, well, you need some sort of track record typically to get a commercial loan. Like it seems, you know, so then that, well, I guess I don't want to answer the question. So how can borrowers like best position themselves? No, you were, you were headed down the right path. So those first couple of deals as a borrower, it's going to be with your bank. It just is. Or you're going to be a partner with somebody else on it yeah. because the, the bank is going to be looking at you as, as a client, not necessarily as a, as a real estate investor. And then they'll say, okay, well, he's never done a, a mortgage loan before on, on a property like this. But I know him as an operator. Right. I know him as a, as a client. He has the financial wherewithal. Once you have done a few of those, then you can start getting into more of these institutional programs like Freddie Mac. Freddie Mac, for example, does have a requirement that you do need other multifamily properties in your portfolio. Okay. And, and can you get a waiver if you only have one? Yes. A waiver if you only have two? Yes. Well, they like to see you know three, four, five, just to know that you you have the the expertise in, in operations to make sure that, that going forward, you're going to be able to maintain the cash flow needed to, to, if there is a, a blip in leasing that you can, you can weather that you, you've, you've seen that before in your, you know, in your, in your history. And then in addition to that, there are like any other borrowing requirements, there's going to be, you know, FICO minimums, there's going to be net worth and liquidity minimums with, with the agency specifically, your net worth should be equal to at least the loan amount with liquidity equal to the greater or excuse me, the lesser of 10% of the loan amount or six months of debt service, or, okay. or I guess the greater of just to make sure that again, even though it is a non-recourse loan, that borrower wants, or excuse me, that lender wants to make sure that should something happen, whether it be a, a capital call event, deferred maintenance issue, whatever the case may be, that the sponsor has the wherewithal to make, to, to write the ship. And then that's the reason why, I mean, some early on, like a lot of people, they partner up, you know, maybe one person has, they have the deal, the other one, they have already owned multifamily. The other one has a balance sheet where you can kind of, you could group that together as well. Right. Mm-hmm. That, 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 that's exactly right. If you have, if you have more than one sponsor, you can, you can be co-borrowers on, on the deal, but and not, not that I want to dissuade anyone from multifamily investing, but it is, I mean, it's a full-time job. I mean, it really is. That's and, really- you know, to, to the extent that you want to begin growing your portfolio, you get to a certain point where it needs to become your job to have a, a, a large portfolio of especially multifamily. Because unless you're, unless you're loading off 100% of the management, both asset and property to somebody else, then you need to be able to have the time to yeah. go through and, and deal with tenant issues, deal with property issues find new deals. I mean, as we just talked about finding deals is a full-time job. So in that instance, you know, if you don't have that, then, you know, it might be better to invest with somebody in a fund with a group. 
that, sense. That that's who does have, you know, that that manpower and that expertise. And you can, sir, I'm sure, learn a lot, too, as a LP in people's deals. Yes. You, know, you see what they're doing, how they set it up. What about, I guess, for, you know, Fannie and Freddie or these other lenders we talked about, do they have, I guess none of them have like a requirement you need to be full time or anything. It was just sort of a, a few of that property type was a requirement. Correct. What you about? don't you don't need to have a, a, a website or a, a long resume of real estate investing, but it does help to have experience. It's a requirement to have at least you know one or two other other assets in your in your real estate owned schedule, but it does help beyond that to have you know to have larger experience. And maybe that's just working at a larger real estate firm. Oh, okay, um, nice. but just some, you know, there's, you know, over the years I've talked to a handful of, you know, physicians who have, have put together a, a, a decent size piece of equity and they want yeah. to get into real estate investing. And that's, that's, that's fine. But that also, it does make it a little bit more difficult to transact for them oh. because they're off doing their doctor thing most right. of the day and, and we have to schedule oh, everything yeah. else around that. That would be difficult. And then especially those first ones, they need to go the bank route anyways. Correct. Great. Well, yeah, Steve, this was a lot of fun. I mean, I think this is a good, uh, good stopping point. So let's, let's leave it there. I mean, how can viewers, listeners get in touch with you if they want to want to learn more about what you're doing or have a, have a lonely need? Place? No, I, uh, again, I appreciate you inviting me in. This, this was fun. I hope to do it again sometime. And I'm always happy to, to talk with people through an existing, an existing deal, a potential deal, just questions. You can reach me at email is probably best, steve.kundert, K-U-N-D-E-R-T at cbre.com. I'll get back to you right away. And like I said, the sooner that we can begin discussions on an asset, the more we can help. And then in terms of like the the cost, I mean, it's, the cost is when it closes. There's no cost to talk to you. Like a, That's like great. A, I, I get paid on at execution, on closing a loan. As I mentioned, I, I, I earn my fee prior to that. You know, the, the, that advisory yeah. work. That's that's really what you're paying me for. Okay. To you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, anyone can go out for the most part and and get a loan, right? That's that's just not necessarily what they may be good at, right? It's like you know, I could go off and I could I could buy assets myself. That's not what I'm good at. I'd rather give my money to you. There we go. Perfect. All right. Well, thanks, Steve. Appreciate Thank it. You. Great job. Thanks for joining us on the Rise and Invest podcast. Please be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube or wherever you enjoy your podcasts. If you'd like to dive even deeper into real estate investing, check out our company's website, riseinvest.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Our 100-plus page passive investing guidebook, our trends report, and our blog are all available on our website. If you are an accredited investor, you can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the Invest Now button on our website, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Rise Invest Holdings LLC and its subsidiaries. The views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities and the speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.